Welcome to the Flabby Bottom Flying Club Studios and the EA Chapter 84 Podcast. I'm your host, David Weber. Once again this month, we are honored to have a historical figure from the chapter with us. If you've ever wondered how the chapter found a home at Harvey Field in Snohomish, Washington, or how the chapter acquired such a premium hangar on Harvey Field, then stay tuned as we talk with the man directly responsible for it, Tom Mann. In my opinion, Tom is a man who likes to get things done. Staying off the brakes and moving forward is part of Tom's DNA. That said, you'll find Tom has a soft side too, as he tells about his life's adventures starting in Scranton, Ohio, to Las Vegas, and now Tennessee. Once again, we conclude the podcast as I bring you the latest Chapter 84 news, including updates on meetings and events. Please, if you are enjoying these podcasts, click that subscribe button now. Doing so helps to keep this podcast available to our members and others. More importantly, it will help you know when a new podcast is available. We'll be right back with our conversation with Tom Mann. to the Flabby Bottom Flying Club Studios. Well, today we are very honored to have a guest with us. Uh, guest that was very prominent in obtaining the chapter hangar along with uh, the current meeting room. Uh, was once vice president of the chapter and we'll get into that. Uh, all during the, uh, the Harley Beard era of the chapter. I'd like to welcome to the studios, Tom Mann. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here, I'll tell you that. Uh, we've been trying to get together for quite some time, and, uh, well, it finally happened. Yep, my son had his birthday yesterday, and I came here for the birthday and arranged to fly through uh, Las Vegas and visit some friends and also to visit up here with you guys. And I'm headed to visit my brother when I leave. <laughs> Where's your brother at? In uh, Escalon, California, just south of Stockton. So where are you at right now? Uh, we live in Johnson City, Tennessee now. We moved there uh, last year in January. Yeah, after uh, 10 years living in Las Vegas, which were, is where we lived when we left here. Right, so you went from the Seattle area down to Las Vegas. And, and, and got tired of that and went out to Tennessee where the weather is perfect. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But no EA chapter out there. And within 50 miles, 40 miles. Wow, wow. Well, it sounds like an opportunity to start one for me. But, yeah, uh, right. I'll leave that up to you. All right, so let's kind of get into uh, young Tom. Tom, where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Well, I was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Joe Biden was also born there, and I'm not too happy about that. If I'd have met him in high school, I think we'd have had some problems. <laughs> But uh, I was born there, partially raised there until, I, until World War II got going good. And my dad had a job that they moved him to uh, Bayonne, New Jersey. And he drove trucks for General Cable Company, delivering uh, cables to the Na Brooklyn Navy shipyard. We lived in Bayonne, which, if anybody doesn't know, is uh, across what they call the Kilvan Cull from Staten Island, New York. So I almost became a native New Yorker, but, but <laughs> didn't, managed, didn't to avoid that. managed to avoid that, yes. <laughs> And then I spent the rest of my childhood after Bayonne, about 1947, I think, we moved to Georgia. And I lived in Augusta until I was 15. 
So eight, it seems like it was a lifetime, but it was only eight years. So, but that's where I consider myself as really growing up and doing everything. As now, a kid. brothers, sisters. Obviously uh, one brother. sister who passed recently. Uh, two brothers, one of whom passed before my sister passed. So it's me and my brother left. We're five years apart. I'm 83 right now, and he's 78. He's having a tough time. He's a 100% disabled vet from the Air Force service he did in Vietnam. He served three different tours over there as an Air Force oh intelligence gosh. specialist, flying with forward air controllers in the back seat. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, you yourself had a little bit of a military stint. Oh, yeah. I was in the, military, in the Air Force from 1960 to 1968. Uh, I remember when uh, I was a uh, missile guidance uh, systems technician. And when I finished school, they picked me to be an instructor, unfortunately, and I didn't want to be there. I wanted to go and see the world, but I stayed and became an instructor. And my uh, three-year enlistment finished after my one year of school, and I re-enlisted, took an early out, as they call it, and re-enlisted, thinking again that I'd get to go see the world. And uh, the, first, the first thing that happened was they went through the alphabet at the base that I was at at Lowry in Denver, and everybody that was uh, whose last name ended in A through L went to Vietnam, and everybody from there on, M through Z, went to various different remote sites. But we all ended up going to remote sites. I ended up in Galena, Alaska. Oh my gosh! In 19 December of 65 to December of 66. How much further away from home can you get? Yeah, well, I could have gone to Shimia or you know someplace in the Aleutians, a little bit further away. But luckily, we didn't. Uh, Galena's right in the center of Alaska, right where the Yukon River makes a bend to the south as it comes out of Canada. So, Well, uh, backing up a little bit, so you, you grew up uh, the first eight years, ended up going through first high school? Eight, yeah, first eight years in New Jersey, uh, the next eight years in Georgia. Went to high school through, I think, 10th grade in Georgia. Went to a high school, and the graduating class was 36. If I'd have stayed there, I'd have graduated in a class of 36. Oh, my God. It was a very small Catholic school. Where was this at in Georgia? In Augusta. Augusta, okay. Yeah. Learned how to play golf when I was nine years old. Every oh kid gosh. in Augusta played golf in those days. Used to cost $1.50 to play 10 or 18 holes of golf at the municipal golf course, which, by the way, was just on the other side of the airport that I lived next to. And... Uh, we used to run across the runway, and we'd, get, we'd always make it carrying our clubs just before the follow-me truck came out from the control tower to chase us off. We were going over the fence by the time he got there. <laughs> so you mentioned airport. Did you have any interest at that, that, that time? Well, the, yeah, yeah. We lived right next to Daniel Field, at, right out of by the runway, not near the, where the hangars and stuff were. So... Uh, uh, during the war, when we, when I, well, right after the war, during the war until about 1950, I guess, uh, uh, Daniel Field was the uh, municipal airport for Augusta. They moved it from Bushfield, which was, uh, they turned over to the Army Air Corps for training, mm -hmm. uh, which in, that reminds me of a story about Harley Beard, but we'll get to that, I guess. But, uh, yeah, so we, we used to, where the grass on the side of the runway, where the DC-3s used to land from Eastern Airlines and Delta Airlines, we carved out a baseball diamond and played baseball there. And it was a home run if you hit the ball to the runway because, you know, we had to wait and make sure we could get the ball before they saw us from the control tower. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was a good childhood. It was great to live down there. We used to play in the woods in the, at the Augusta National Golf Course, which is now, you know, you can't get anywhere near that for less than millions of dollars, I think. Oh, I would die. Yeah. yeah. 
I went to the Masters tournament in uh, 1955, I think it was, when Kerry Middlecoff won the Masters. I don't know if anybody remembers him. He was I a sure dentist. Don't. He was a dentist that turned pro golfer. And saw guys like Sammy Sneed, Ben Hogan, those guys were the golf. Uh, Arnold Palmer was just a, a newcomer to the Masters in those days. And uh, we used to get in for like $7.50 for the whole tournament you could get in. They gave you a little paper tag to stick on your shirt button, and that would let you in there. And we could go in free to watch the uh, practice rounds in, in leading up to the Masters. So... I have quite a history with the Masters. I watch it every year still. <laughs> Probably recognize them. I recognize the course. Yeah. It hasn't changed much. Wow. But uh, they don't ever go in the woods where we used to go. <laughs> At least I hope they don't. Is the airport still there? Uh, yeah, it's still a general aviation airport. It's very, very uh, well known. I get The guy that's named after is a famous uh, southern aviator. I don't know a lot about his history, but his last name was Daniel, not his first name. And, uh, and that's why they called it Daniel Field. And it was... I think it was constructed as part of the uh, uh, Works Progress Administration in the Roosevelt administration. Oh, okay. That, it goes that back that far, and it's much improved today. All right, so now after high school, where do you end up after high school? Did you oh, after, uh, when I was, yeah, when I was in high school, I transferred in my senior year from Georgia back to Pennsylvania, and uh, unfortunately, it put me in an unsolvable problem because in the state of Pennsylvania back in those days, you had to have this one half credit course called Problems of Democracy, which was a civics course. And it was always taught in the ninth grade. It's the only grade you could get it in. And of course, I transferred as a senior and I never had that course, so they wouldn't give me a diploma because I didn't finish the, the requirements. So I went to summer school. They invited me to go to summer school to take the course. And I finished the course. I read the chapters and took the tests and finished the course in like a week and a half and thought I had it made and walked away. It was all done. And I still couldn't get my diploma because in addition to taking the course, you had to put in so many clock hours in the classroom. Uh. And I didn't meet that requirement. So anyway, ultimately what happened was with the negotiations with my parents and the school district and everything like that, I was already in college in Lynchburg, Virginia, and they uh, called my sister, who was a year behind me, uh, down to the office one day. She thought she was in trouble, and they handed her my high school diploma. <laughs> so I graduated in, like, February <laughs> instead of June of 58. I, it says uh, February of 59, which is kind of a weird date for a high school graduation. So did they let you walk? No, <laughs> no, I wouldn't go back and walk anyway. <laughs> so I was already—I already got into college without a high school diploma, just on the promise that I had one coming. And where was this college? Lynchburg College. It's now Lynchburg University. Okay. It's not the one that the that famous Reverend Jerry Falwell. That's—it's uh -huh. a different college than that. That Lynchburg College has been there since the Civil War. It only had four buildings when I went there. Now it's a big giant university. So. And what were you majoring in? I was trying to be a pre. I was a pre-med student, trying okay. to be a doctor. And then you finished that year, and I transfer. I I applied to Penn State the first time, but they wouldn't take me because I hadn't graduated from high school. So <laughs> while I was at Lynchburg, I reapplied at Penn State and got accepted. And in my sophomore year, I transferred to Penn State, and uh, turned out to be one of the biggest party schools I'd ever seen. Oh so. my gosh. So uh, they invited me to leave after the end of my sophomore year because <laughs> I didn't qualify. My GPA was less than 2.0. <laughs> and 
Is, so is that when you started? And that's when I uh, joined the Air Force. Yeah. Well, actually, what I did, I was I was applying for jobs all over the place. And, of course, in those days, you had to have your draft obligation out of the way. And the first question they asked in the interview every time was, is your draft obligation done? You know, the two-year service. Right. And, of course, I had to say no, so nobody would ever hire me. And uh, I finally got fed up after three months of that and went downtown to the post office looking for the recruiters <laughs> to get my draft obligation out of the way thinking it was only going to be two years. And the only recruiter that was there, everybody else was out to lunch, and uh, was the Air Force recruiter. So he said, we have a program that you can become a navigator and a B-52 bomber, and then you can get an officer's uh, position. And I thought, well, that's for me. So I said, okay. And we flew over to uh, Langley Air Force Base. I was in, this was in Virginia at Lynchburg. Right. We flew over to Langley Air Force Base, and I took a whole day of tests. They had... Uh, uh, psycholo psychology tests, technical knowledge tests. I mean, it's a whole battery of tests all day long, plus a medical exam. And I, they gave me the tests first, and then I went and had the medical. And uh, I did well on the tests. I qualified, and then I took the medical exam, and I, I failed the eye exam. So in those days, you had to, if you were on flying status with the Air Force, you had to have 20-20 vision, no matter what your job was. If you were no a gunner, what. yeah. If you were a gunner, navigator, communication officer, whatever, pilot, you had to have 20-20 vision, uncorrected. <clears throat> so I couldn't pass. So then they offered me a program. As Before I went back, the recruiter was still there with me, and he said, well, since that didn't work out, and then he started talking about electronics and all this stuff, which in 1960 was uh, like the upcoming thing. Right. So he convinced me. I, I had to get the obligation out of the way anyway. So he convinced me to enlist for four years, which I did. And I told you the rest. I became. I went through missile guidance training and stuff like that. Became an instructor and uh, actually enjoyed it. And I re-enlisted with the intent of staying in the Air Force for a career. But uh, the Air Force had different plans for me. I spent a year in Alaska in a remote site without my family. I by, by that time I had a wife and two kids, and I spent a year away from them. And I came back and I went to Langley Air Force Base, which was our station. And I got a set of orders to send me to Tripoli, Libya, which was another remote assignment without my family. And I, I uh, canceled my reenlistment. They, oh, they, you could do that. Well, not legally. The first, I went into the orderly room, and the first sergeant started rummaging through the uh, paperwork on the adjutant's desk as a second lieutenant because uh, he wasn't there. And I found my enlistment extension that I had signed. And I took it out and tore it up and threw it in the wastebasket. And the first sergeant said, hey, what are you doing? You know, you can't do that. And I said, oh, and walked out. <laughs> and then the major, the squadron commander, had me come over to his office because I was the retention NCO for our squadron where I was talking to younger airmen into reenlisting in the Air Force. Right. And he was upset that I was leaving the Air Force as the retention NCO. <laughs> so anyway, he didn't talk me into it. I got out. And I got a job in the computer industry then, in 1968. So why did you choose Air Force over any... Because he was the only recruiter that was there. If it had been the Marine recruiter, I'd have been, been a Marine. Marines. Right, or, you know, the Army, Navy, Air Force, you know, I whoever was there. fascinating that that's how you... I would, that's how frustrated I was about not being able to find a job. Oh, and then the funny thing is, I was at basic training in the Air Force, not even a week yet, and my mother had written me a letter telling me that three companies that I had interviewed with called up for, and they wanted me to come back for a second interview. <laughs> so 
Oh, sure <laughs> it was too late. <laughs> too late. So I'm, I don't regret it. I mean, I regretted it at the time, I think, but I don't. I didn't regret it. At, you know, in the long run, my Air Force experience was exciting and fun, and I enjoyed it. I was going to make it a career. Do you think that's kind of got you on the road to your career path after that? Uh, well, it's, it definitely did with the air, with the electronics training that I got. I mean, you know, there's no better electronics training in the United States than you can get with the Navy or the Air Force. And maybe really? even now today the Army has it probably because everything's electronic these days, digital. But in those days, the Navy and the Air Force had the best electronics. The school was a year long, <clears throat> excuse me, a year long. Six months of electronics fundamentals and six months of systems fundamentals. And where was that at? At Lowry Air Force Base okay. in Denver which is now closed. Part of the, the big closure. Right. I, you know, the time I was in the Air Force, I was, you know, I really thought I could get on flying status of some kind, and uh, I never did, never was able to. But then, like I said, I never regretted what I was doing. But uh, they did have a flying club at Lowry when I was there, and I was still single, and I still had pocket money. So I joined the flying club. We could rent, uh, I'm, I, I don't remember what it was. I don't think it was a Piper Cub, but it was a, a plane of that vintage okay. that they had in the flying club. And uh, you could rent it for $5 an hour wet with an instructor oh my gosh. <laughs> to take lessons. And I got about five lessons under my belt. And then uh, I got married and, you know, I got distracted from flying. And oh, yeah. Typical story. Living, yeah. And then... Uh, Let's see. I was trying to remember. I, of course, when I was a kid, like I said, a bunch of us used to ride our bikes to the airport hangar there and pester pilots and stuff like that for rides and offer to wash their airplanes and clean them up for them. And, you know, luckily there was a couple of old guys that, you know, kind of like kids, I guess, and they used to take us up all the time. And I had a friend whose father owned a Bonanza, and uh, he owned a lumber company that had sites all over the state of Georgia so whenever he was in the right mood he would take me and my friend with him in the back seat of the Bonanza we, we used to fight to see who got to sit in the front seat <laughs> but amazing. since it was his dad's airplane he usually got he usually won the fight <laughs> but yeah I had a lot of flying hours as a passenger there as a kid before I was even 12 that's pretty amazing so yeah and I I maintained my interest in flying all the time I found out later in life that uh, the Doolittle Raiders did some of their short field training at Daniel Field during the war before I lived in Augusta oh really yeah because they were the airport the airfield was uh, a flat airfield like they all are but at the end there was a drop off like a it wasn't quite a cliff but it was about a 30 foot uh, you know like the end of an aircraft carrier yeah, yeah. and they would practice their uh, the folks that lived in the neighborhood said that they always wondered what was going on when those bomb because they never saw bombers before and they'd have a bunch of bombers in there flying around all day and uh, I was kind of sad that I missed that <laughs> knowing what I know now but so uh, did you get any seat time while you were in the Air Force in any uh well yeah I, I said I had five hours of dual instruction before I had to, I think it was about five hours. Yeah, I didn't. In, I didn't even have a logbook. <laughs> in any military? Aircraft? No, I never got to do any official military flying. Oh wow! At all. I don't. I don't regret that because I remember when I was in Galena, people were flying around in C-123s, and when I looked inside the C-123, you know, you almost have to sit on the floor. If you're a passenger. Oh yeah. And a little two-engine high-wing airplane with a back end that hang out, hung out, you know, open back end. So when you got out of the Air Force, where'd you go? So, yeah, when I got discharged, I, I was back in Scranton, my hometown, and uh, started, I, before I got out, I started uh, answering ads at the back of the Air Force Times. 
they had a lot of ads for electronics technicians in those days. And uh, I got, I don't know, six or seven interviews, and uh, but I couldn't go to them because I was still in the service. I got offers for six or seven interviews. I couldn't go to them, but when I got out, I was, I was making plans that I was going to drive to wherever I had to to get an interview. And uh, my mother happened to be a schoolmate of the person who ran the unemployment department in my city, in Scranton mm -hmm. there. So when she told her friend that I was getting out of the Air Force looking for a job in electronics, the day I went down to file for unemployment, as a matter of fact, she called me to the head of the line in front of a bunch of people and sent me on an interview to a company called Burroughs, and that's I signed on with them. I had a choice between them and uh, Remington Rand uh, for a computer technician job, entry-level computer technician job. And I picked Burroughs because they had an office in my hometown where the Remington Rand office was in Allentown, 60 miles away. And you're married at this time. Oh, yeah, married with two, two kids. kids. And uh, so I, they, she sent me for an interview. And I remember where I went was to the Burroughs office, but it was in the, what I remembered to be the old Nash automobile shop, you know, with the big plate glass window that Burroughs had taken that over as their office. Huh. So I went in there and, and uh, they hired me. And I went to, first thing right off the bat, I went to school for six months again to learn how computers worked <laughs> and uh, made a career out of that, became, worked my way. I worked there for 18 years, I guess, in different places, got moved around the country a little bit, went from there to Denver, to Albuquerque, to California, and then uh, left the company uh, and, you know, continued my career with other electronics companies. Now, during this time, are you looking at all of... Uh any I actually sort of aviation action, or you? I actually was plant when we moved from Denver to Albuquerque. We it took us a while to get settled in Denver because uh, in those days it was pretty hard for a a low income employee to buy a house. I mean, okay. you know, they didn't have programs like they have today where you can get help with your mortgage, so we could never qualify for a mortgage. But when we moved to Denver, I mean, in Pennsylvania, we couldn't qualify for a mortgage, so we moved to Denver. Uh, we were able to buy a house on the GI Bill because I was discharged, and uh, we got we bought our first house for sixteen thousand dollars. I think it was. It was a three bedroom house, <laughs> <laughs> on a, and it was on a really nice lot, a big lot. Big. We had a big yard in the back for the kids to play in. We put up two swing sets, and I mean we were really nice. It was really nice then, but uh, uh, yeah, that was the first house we owned. And I, like I said, I, I think I bought a car like 10 years later for uh, more money than I paid for that house. It was a Buick. <laughs> so are you, at this point, uh, at least considering going and getting a pilot's license? Or are you starting I'd always wanted to finish that. I started it in the Air Force in 1961, and I dropped out. And uh, when I finally got discharged, I thought, now I have a chance to get it. And uh, I had an old insurance policy that I cashed in. Okay. And I think I got like 2800 bucks or something like that for that. And I signed up at a, this is, by this time I was living in Albuquerque. Okay. I signed up with a flight school in Albuquerque. And uh, I think I took two flying lessons there. And then uh, something, I can't remember what the emergency was, but something happened anyway. And I had to take the money and use it for that instead of flying. And I dropped it again and uh, did my 18-year career with Burroughs. And uh, when I left Burroughs, it was a voluntary uh, layoff type situation where they, I got a pretty nice separation package. And one of the, part of the package was a $5,000 uh, grant, I guess you'd call it, to retrain since they laid me off. 
And uh, so I took that $5,000 right to the nearest flight school in California and signed <laughs> up. And I, I, I pissed the instructor off because I wanted to fly every day, you know, and he didn't want to. He says, no, that's not how you do it. You got to digest things and, you know, think about it and analyze it and really? debrief and then go back up maybe t a day or two later. Not the same. You know, don't, I, I would have taken 40 hours straight if they'd have let me. <laughs> I was so anxious to get my, uh, my license. I but, find that uh, amazing that he didn't want to fly day after day. Yeah. Just well, he he had other students. He you know he, I, uh, he'd be working overtime okay. with me doing it every day because right. he had his schedule all laid out. Right. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I went to ground school first. I had to get that done before. Okay. Before uh, the instructor would take me on up up you know to fly to do right. flying instructions. But I, I learned pretty quick. I mean, I think I soloed at 11 hours or 10 hours. And what like airport that. was this at? That you this was at, uh, oh, it just went out of my mind. Now. Oh, that's all right. We'll it's, it's the airport in Southern California that's right next to the raceway, the drag race strip out there for Pomona Grounds. Okay. I'll think of the air, name of the airport in a minute. I'll just blurt it out whenever it comes yeah. to you. But So you, you did all of your flight training there. Got it all done? Every bit, right. I got it all done in about three months, two months, I think I finished it. And that's where you took your check ride too? Took my check ride for the, with a TWA uh, 747 pilot that his route was New York to Paris. And he lived in uh, Perrin, Paris, California, which was close to the field that I... And I asked him about New yeah, York to Paris. Yeah, and, and I asked him, I said, how do you do that? And he says, well, I deadhead every... When it's my turn to fly, I deadhead to, from... Uh, L.A. to uh, New, York. New yeah. York, and then I fly my route, you know, however many trips, I forgot he told me he made, you know, in that period of time, and then I did head back, and, he, you know, he had like a month between shifts or something like that, you know, it was a long time, and he was a certified flight instructor, and, he was, and when he wasn't flying 747s, he was sitting with students in 172s, <laughs> oh and uh, it was a, quite an interesting test ride. We, I think I had... Uh, a check ride. I mean, it was. I think I had a more thorough check ride from him than I would have gotten from a regular, uh, you know, teenage or twenty-year-old flight. Why, instructor. why do you say that? Because he was. I mean, he'd do this, do that. You know. Oh, and then he'd think oh, we'd be flying straight, and he'd say suddenly he'd tell me to do something, and you know, he was checking to see if I was aware, you know, situational awareness type things all the time. Did you check over your shoulder to see if anything was coming before you made that left turn? That type of thing. He did that to me for a long time. It seems like I was two hours getting my check ride. I felt like he was picking on me, but he said I did very well when we finished, except when we parked the airplane, it was on a slight incline. And you know how the emergency brakes, or you know, the yeah. handbrake on an airplane works. They don't. <laughs> we started getting out of the plane, and it, it started, started rolling, rolling downhill. <laughs> and uh, so he got out and put the chocks on there and held it. It wasn't a real steep. It was just enough to get it to start rolling. So... <laughs> He said, "I'm not." He says, "Don't worry, I'm not going to mark you off for that." He said, "You did very well." Oh, that was well. nice of him. Yeah, you did very well. So, so did he make you do any? Uh, I didn't have to do any aerobatics. I thought he no. was going to have me strike, you know, do a roll because I never I didn't know how to do that no, kind of they stuff. Don't make you do no, I know, roll. but I was worried about him because he was being <laughs> so uh, so thorough. I guess is the way to put it. Did you have to put goggles or blinders on? Oh yeah, I had to okay. do the instrument thing with the with the. I'm just trying to compare it as to today what you have to do versus when you were. I had to do I had to do 
uh, well, everything everybody has to do turns around a point, 180s and 360s, and stuff. You don't lose more than 20 feet of altitude or whatever it was. He said. Okay. I think, I think the standard was 50 feet, but he his was a lot tighter. Uh, we had to do that. Then he had me do some navigation problems in my head. You know, it's like if you wanted to fly to and he'd name a town. If you wanted to uh -huh. go there, what setting? You know, what heading would you be flying oh, okay. to get there and stuff like that? See if I was familiar with the charts. But that kind of stuff, extra stuff that I, no, when I talk to other people, they never had to do some of the stuff I had to do. So No spins or anything like that? Uh, I don't think he made me do it. He asked me if I'd ever done a spin, but he never made me do it. But oh, I said, okay. yeah, that was the funnest part of learning how to fly was my instructor <laughs> loved to do spins. So we'd always go up, you know, 10,000 feet and he'd say, let's do a right spin. Let's do a left spin, you know. And I loved it. And then he had me do it. You know, when you first do stalls, yeah. you, you, the, the first stall I think you do is you cut the power and just try to keep the plane level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I was anxious to get into the stall, so I cut Very the power careful. and pulled the stick back. And we went up and he said, whoa, that was a quick stall. And then, of course, the plane just falls off. And if you don't have the rudders balanced exactly, you'll do a spin automatically in a 172. And I asked him, I said, can we do spins? Because I heard that they don't do those anymore in the instruction. Because uh -huh. I guess older pilots before me, like right. I know, I think if I had finished my flight training in initial in 61, I would have done spins. And I, said, I asked him to teach me to do spins. So, And he, he loved it. He said, oh, I like doing spins. Most, most students don't want to do them. You know, uh -huh. And I, I kind of liked it. So what did you do with your pilot's license after you got Nothing. It? I just rented airplanes and bored hold in the sky, you know. I but had, you kept, you kept flying. Oh, I kept it current, yeah. And I had friends that uh, we never flew. Not until I moved up to the northwest here did I ever fly with anybody in a group to go someplace. It was always by myself. Or, I mean, I had other people in the plane with me, but not other people I was flying with. So what year was it that you moved up to the northwest? And we came up here in uh, 1999, I think. Or that eight. was a career move, job move? Yeah, right. Okay. And, uh, of course, I got in with Chapter 170, or 175 was my Florida chapter. I'm sorry. I got in yeah. with Chapter uh, 84 up here with you guys when I and met you. that was you. 98? I think it was 98 or 99. I can't remember the exact number, the yeah. exact time. But I met you and uh, Steve Smith. Right. At the uh, I was looking for the EAA chapter locally, and I found it. Uh, I don't know if I found it on the internet. I don't think I was. I I used the internet in '99 to find my job in Florida or '96. So I know I was on the internet looking for EAA, and it was right down the street. I, we lived in Marysville. We moved up here. Okay. And when I went down to Snohomish, and uh, I took the information off the internet, and I found out we were meeting in the back room of the library down in Snohomish. And I drove and down the there. The old library. Yeah, the old library. Yeah. And I drove down there in the dark the first time because it was wintertime or mm -hmm. you know late fall. And I got lost because <laughs> Snohomish <laughs> isn't, they don't have signs up everywhere that says where the library is. And they didn't have GPS in those days. And I was using a Thomas guide, and that's hard to read in the car when it's right. dark. <laughs> so anyway, I got lost, but I finally made it there. And uh, I'm, like I said, I met you guys. And... Uh, First question I asked, I think Jim Davison, I'm not sure, I think he was either the vice president or something. I said, why are you guys meeting in the library when you have the best little airport in the world down there in Snohomish? Because I'd been to the airport, you know, looking right, at, checking it out, but there was never anybody there when I was there to talk to. And uh, he said, uh, I, I don't remember what he told me, but I guess the problem was that nobody ever asked him, you know, down there. Or maybe, you know, I used to meet in Painfield. 
and then they moved to Harvey. And I, Painfield was before my time. Yeah, we went from Painfield. Well, I wasn't in the chapter at Painfield, but I did go to meetings when we were at the PUD building. And then we went from the PUD building. Yeah, I never saw, I never attended. I remember that. I think they yeah. were just they had just moved into the library. I think when I came. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I went over. Me and Jim Davis. Clock every night. Yeah. Right. Right. And we used to have to like hurry up and get the presentation done. Exactly, and it was a long. I I remember it was a long narrow room. You were right. if you sat in the back, you were a long way from the front. Right. And. Uh, so Jim and I, I, for some reason, we got together after the meeting or something. He says, I'll go with you to talk to Candace Harvey. I said, okay, let's go talk to her and see if we can get some room. And we went down there, and I guess they had just finished renovating Hangar 15, putting a new floor in on it and everything, mm -hmm. and turned it into a, they were going, they intended to use it as a, as a training facility of some sort or presentation facility. And when, I, when we talked to Candace, she was excited about getting the EAA. She said, I always wanted to get the EAA to come down here. <laughs> I, I'm thinking, you know, here's this bunch of guys meeting in this crappy air, or library place, and here's the lady that owns the airport wondering where the EAA is. So I mean, it was kind of funny. Yeah, the library was always sort of, we felt never welcomed there. It was always a... Yeah, that's the feeling I had, was, was that you guys a, were telling me, well, we got to get out of here. And I think when we were in the parking lot talking about that, I said, how come the meeting was like zip, zip, zip? You know, we went through it so quick. Yeah, we would show up and they would almost give us a, oh, you guys are here, kind of look. You yeah, know, just what are you doing here? that we actually showed up for something that we had planned and booked. And, and uh, then they would come in at five minutes to nine and say... You got to wrap it up, and we had to be out of there at nine o'clock. Well, I remember Candace. She was very excited about getting us in there, and we I, we got kind of excited about going there. But they, she had a lot of rules and regulations because that hangar was just brand new inside, and we couldn't make marks on the floor, and we had to be careful with the chairs, and we had to clean up our, after ourselves. We couldn't, you know, we had to right. set up and tear down and make it pristine before we left. And uh, everybody cooperated with doing that, and it worked out well. It still works out. Good yeah, today. and I, yeah, now it's uh, of course that hangar's seen them many years away since then. I'm sure I don't know if they've renovated it since, but the uh, a couple touch-ups here and there. I remember one time after a meeting, I, we were putting the chairs away, and the, the, I had them, they were stacked against the wall, the folding chairs. Uh -huh. And just as I walked past the stack, one of them slipped out of the thing, and I stepped on it, and it was like being on a skateboard. <laughs> across that slick field or that slick floor so what was the what was the chapter like back then did you see that uh was there a lot of activity what do you what? well when i first joined up there it was in the winter time so there wasn't much out, outside stuff happening and i don't remember ever going to a uh, uh project visit you know er, uh -huh. early on when i first got there but uh I'm trying to remember, uh, Rand Martin, I think, was became the president right. shortly after. I don't know who the president was. Uh, Tom Williams was the president, I think, when I joined the chapter oh, at okay. the library. And uh, it's either Tom or Jim, Dave. I, those two guys, in my mind, for a long time were mixed up. I didn't know which one was which. <laughs> but uh, Even though they look nothing alike. Yeah, they don't look anything like Tom's tall and skinny and Jim's kind of a short guy and bald. <laughs> but in my mind, the names, I, I couldn't keep which one was which. But uh, uh, I think uh, uh, Tom was, I think it was Tom that was the president. And uh, we didn't do, I don't remember doing a whole lot of outside stuff, but I know that uh, Tom and uh, a couple other guys brought stuff into the meetings 
and demonstrated how they did something on a build of an airplane. I think Tom was talking about uh, welding aluminum or something like right. that, and he couldn't set anything up because they didn't want that stuff in the hangar then or something. There yeah. was some restriction. I and, understand that. And stuff like that. But uh, then when the springtime came, I guess we started doing uh, project visits and uh, stuff like that. I, mean, I remember yours was one of the first projects I visited. You were building your uh, Sonics then. I think you had the, you were working on the fuselage. You didn't have the wings done yet. Yeah. Had you at that point decided to? Build I was. Sonic? I think I, when I met you and Steve, I was talking about. I was looking for. I was thinking about building an RV because, of course, you know, the RVs and the glass airs, glass. I get the glass, glass air, star. glass star. The overhead wing is that the yeah, glass, glass star? star. The fellows that were building those in our EA chapter in Florida, where I moved from. I had helped with some of those builds, and I was interested in, in the RV and in the, the Glass Star, those two. And uh, I was trying to make up my mind because I had some money, and I was ready to buy a kit. And then I started talking to you and Steve, and of course you both were building Sonics at the time. And I had never heard of a Sonics, so I went and started doing research on that, and I said, oh, this is for me, man. The kit was only like, I think the kit I bought was 11, 10 or 11,000 bucks complete, yeah. Yeah. except for the engine and panel. And I thought, that's pretty good. That's pretty reasonable compared to the RV or the Glass Star. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, and it was pulled rivets, which kind of appealed to me because hammering rivets, <laughs> I wasn't too keen about doing that, you know, with the... With the uh, my wife's not an aviation person, and I'm sure she'd have been irritated if I was out in the garage banging on rivets <laughs> in the middle of the night. <laughs> so anyway... It can I picked, be a problem. Yeah. Yes. So I ended up picking a Sonics, and I went back to her class... Or, or their, uh, I guess it was a class. I'm not sure what it was. It was yeah. uh, for builders, you know, yeah. come in and we we made a wing portion and stuff like that. And man, I really got into it and I was all uh, yeah. all hopped up about it. And the garage I had was a detached garage in my house. Just happened to have a, a great space for a shop. I put a four by eight table in there and I had room to walk. You know, three people could walk around that. It was so big. And... Uh, I, I decided to build the, the tail feathers and the wings first, and then I started with the flap. It's the smallest piece, <laughs> and I built the flap, and I made it wrong, so I had to order a new flap skin, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, got off to kind of a rough start, but I did, uh, I did yeah, build it. Yeah, because nobody else has ever done anything like that and <laughs> built in an airplane, right? <laughs> built the first part wrong. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's yeah, true or not, but your I'm... Your experience uh, isn't that different than right. most. I, it was fun, though. I did that. And I had you, of course. You were my technical advisor. And, and uh, I was kind of with Steve, too. I, we visited Steve's shop. And then when I saw Steve's airplane, I was, I was kind of disappointed because, you know, it's the first time I saw, you know how when you hammer a nail and you bend it over, you say, ah, oh, the hell with it, and you just pound it flat? And Steve had some rivets in his wing and stuff that I yeah. saw that. I think he did that with. Anyway, yeah. enough was, said about that. He was unique. He was unique. And he had rigged himself, a, he had some kind of a disease, multiple sclerosis, mm -hmm. or, and he had rigged himself some kind of a, a hoist mechanism to get in and out of his airplane and everything like that. But anyway, so I, I decided to go with the Sonics and I started building it. I built the, the tail feathers first, the, the horizontal stabilizer and the vertical stabilizer first, and then the elevators. I built those, and then I built the flaps, and then I built the wings, and I, I remember... Uh, uh, Kenny, uh, what was Kenny's name? Rayburn. Rayburn. Kenny Rayburn was building his wings at the same time, so we decided to go together. 
So he had a nice big upstairs workshop in his right. garage, and I went out there and brought my spars and all out there, and we built our spars together uh, with your guidance. I think you, you got him started doing it, and then he was passing the knowledge on to me, and we both finished our wing spars at the same time. And I took them home in the back of my, in, in my truck and, and put them in my shop, and uh, was getting ready to work on the fuselage and uh, decided we're, my wife and I had been looking for a retirement place. We, we knew we weren't going to stay here in the weather when we retired. So right. just as I was ready to start my fuselage, uh, we moved. So I had to pack it into a U-Haul truck and take it with me to Las Vegas. And uh, never did finish it. Then I had open heart surgery. I mean, you know, medical things came up when you get to be a certain age. I had triple bypass surgery, and I thought to myself, after I finished that, I said, I can just see myself flying around up there and suddenly just dying because something failed in my heart transfer or in my my uh heart surgery and you know there goes the airplane down and it kills 50 people on the ground i said i better quit thinking about flying so i sold the kit to a guy in reno or did he ever finish it and and well i checked with him about a year ago and he hadn't touched it since he bought it oh my gosh yeah and i i was trying to figure out a way to buy it back because I've survived that surgery now for, I think I had it in 2010, 2009, 2010, right around the change over there, which is quite a few years ago. So I figure I'm safe. Nothing yeah. bad's going to happen. I mean, other than normal death. <laughs> so Let's back I, up a little I, bit and, and kind of talk about one of the things that uh, I think the chapter has benefited the most from, which was the acquisition of the, the hangar. How did that all come about? Well, as I said, Candace was very happy to see us come and ask about that. And she was, uh, I asked her about uh, if uh, my plan in Florida, we had a, one of the guys had a hangar that we used to meet in and uh, he owned the hangar. And I thought, well, I, you can't buy a hangar at Harvey. I don't think, maybe you can, I don't know. I didn't think you could. So I was thinking in terms of it would be a, like a tea hanger we'd get to put chairs in. I was, that's where I was going to present to her. And she presented to me that we could use that Hangar 15 for our meetings. And then I said, well, is there any way we can get a hangar that we can use as a workshop and a, and a uh, training type thing for the chapter? And she said, well, there, that, I forget, it was a plumbing company or an air conditioning company or something that was in that last hangar on the end there by yeah, the I closest did, to the runway. I think they did sheetrock. Sheetrock or something. It, yeah. was a, it was like a double-sized hangar or something. It was a regular tea hangar, but it had a, like an office on one side and a storage area on the other. Mm -hmm. And she said, that's going to be available. And I said, we asked her how much the rent was, and she said they were paying like seven fifty a month or something. And I said, eee. You know, she said, I, I said, I don't know. That I, I didn't know anything about the finances of the club or the chapter at that time. So I didn't know. Jim Davison piped up and said, well, that would be too expensive because, you know, we didn't have our treasury was X amount of dollars. Or right. It was. So I'm not I don't remember exactly how the conversation turned to that. But she offered us the hangar, I think, at three fifty a month with a four hundred dollar discount. As I remember it now, I might it was be wrong. significant. It, yeah, it was a significant discount, and uh, but she and and it it was uh, not only did she give us a discount, but she was giving up the rent that she was getting that she could have gotten from a commercial business, mm -hmm. and and which I thought was very generous of her. And uh, so, but she was just real happy to have the EAA presence on the field. So I don't know what her background was as far as EAA was concerned before that. 
but she knew about EAA. And, and it seemed to me, talking to the guys that I did meet at the first meeting I went to, that nobody had ever talked to her about moving there from Payne Field. I, I didn't, there might have been something that happened between Payne Field and going to PUD. I don't know. That maybe they yeah, wanted to have, come. I'm not aware of anything. Yeah, they might have wanted to come to Harvey and something happened, or maybe there was somebody in the picture that wasn't there anymore. I don't know. As I understand it, Cat or Candace wasn't always the person that ran the airport. Some one of the male Harvey members ran it, mm -hmm. and I don't know anything about that. But Candace was very happy to have us come in there. Yeah, we've been pretty happy there ever since. Yeah, and and uh, I, as long as I guess you know, it's it's one of those kind of things when you wonder, you know, you make a deal with somebody and you hope that the people are going to live up to the deal. The people on our side are not going to screw the hanger up and right. break the windows and, you know, mess up the men's room and the, or the ladies' room and all that. You hope that that doesn't happen because you don't have any control over that. Right. And I remember at one point that we were actually mopping the floor, I think, after the meetings to get the little marks that we did leave off the floor because it was brand new. And I think the first time we tried to do that, the water wasn't turned on in that sink thing <laughs> that they had there, so we couldn't do it. And I went to her the next day and apologized because we didn't have any water. Well, we still uh, still have our Christmas dinners there. Yeah, yeah. Which has worked out great. And yep. we're going to have it again this year. And I remember when we took, when we got that hangar out, out at the end of the airport, uh, excuse me, at the end of the hangar row up next to the uh, runway. It's practically on the runway, I guess. You can just throw a rock from the, from the hangar to the runway. Uh, we had a big crew come out there on the weekend, and we, we had to clean out a whole bunch of crap that that company had left there in their storage right. area, and they left the office area in terrible condition. And then, as I recall, uh, uh, Nick Gentry, I think, put he, he was going to build workbenches, yeah. and, and he put in an air compressor system, and we were going to do... Uh, you know, teach young kids if we could get them involved in aviation. We we're going to show them how to build airplanes and stuff like. I don't know if that ever happened. It didn't yeah, happen. The tables are there. It didn't happen before I left. Yeah, but uh, tables are there. And then I and, think we uh, had to remodel the bathroom to get it to work right. And uh, we did a lot of work for the. I mean, you know, we we gave a lot of work to Candace for. We refurbished that area, really nice. And I think we even repainted the sign or painted. We had a sign up on top of the. Yeah. Uh, hang is still there, I guess. And uh, what was the other thing we had? Oh, we volunteered to paint the compass rose. I mm -hmm. don't know if we ever did that. I do remember the working on the uh, the wind the wind thing. What the do you wind call tea. It? We did the yeah, wind tea. Yeah, wind tea. So I mean, you know, it was kind of a, a symbiotic deal, I guess, between us. And I it, hopefully she's still happy with us now because I haven't been around for 13 years, so I don't know. But <laughs> I'm, you're still there, so I'm assuming you're doing something right. Yeah, we're still there. Good. She hasn't said get out yet so <laughs> good deal if she does i don't unfortunately i don't have maybe if i have time to, well she probably won't be i was going to stop by and see if i could see her before i left but uh i don't know if i'll have time she's, she's probably, probably not, down in arizona right now yeah she, yeah during so, the winter her but I, I did see phil out you know i didn't know if i think i met phil a couple of times but i i don't really is he the, he's the guy that runs the maintenance area right or is that her son that runs that no he's kind of in charge of the, the maintenance around yeah the, okay. the airport yeah yeah yeah, takes care of that kind of stuff. Well, I, I'm say, if you see Candace, tell her I'm, I'm sorry I missed her. Right. I'd, I'd um, like to have renewed my acquaintance with her. So let's jump into uh, something else I want to touch on just before uh, we let you go here. And uh, you brought your grandson over to me 
few years ago to uh, give a young eagles ride, and I was really impressed with that young man. Uh, kind of give us an update where what what he's doing and and what's going on. Yeah. Okay. I'll be glad to. Yeah. He uh, he's ex he expressed an interest in flying to me because he knew I was a pilot. And uh, I haven't spent a whole lot of time with him because we moved, as I said, just as he was coming up. You know, he was like, I think, four or five years old when we moved away. And uh, uh, he, he expressed an interest. And then his mom called me up one day and said, what's this Young Eagles thing? Because <laughs> I, I think I had mentioned Young Eagles to them, but he was too young when I first talked to him. He wasn't ready. As you recall, he came to uh, Arlington with me and my son and sat in your Sonics, because right. that was the first year you exhibited your Sonics up there. And he sat in, and I still have pictures on my phone of him there. He's a little <laughs> bitty kid. But anyway, uh, it, uh, I was I was rushing the deal, because I was looking forward to flying him in my airplane and all that kind of stuff. I, I have another set of grandsons that are like a different generation, you know, 20 years older than him right. from my oldest daughter. And uh, I flew them around in my airplane, you know, when I rented airplanes. Right. And uh, I was looking forward to doing that in my own airplane. But anyway... Uh, he was interested. Uh, she, I guess he asked his mom or something. I don't know how it came up in their family, but her, his mom called me and said, how do you get involved in this Young Eagles thing? And I said, what do you mean involved? And she said, well, I'd like to get Tommy to to, to get a, a ride in a Young Eagles. I said, okay, I'll uh, check. So I called up uh, the, your Young Eagles coordinator at the time. He lives out at the airport there. What's his name? I can't remember his name. Who was the Young Eagles coordinator before the one they got? I can't remember. Mark Morris or there he no Mark Morris was that him? I, that might have been his name. He lived out in the Frontier Air Park. Okay. With uh, there's three guys that I know that lived out there. Rand Martin lived out there, and this other guy who if it's Mark Morris lived out there, and the third guy I knew was a coworker of my daughter at the Washington State Patrol. He lived out there. Yeah. So I knew I knew three people in that air park, <laughs> but. Uh, Anyway, I called him up, and I asked him when the next Young Eagles thing was, and I knew as it was coming up, I think it was the one in, uh, he missed it anyway. It was too, right. it was, it came up too quick before he could make the arrangements to get there. So then I called you, or he called you. I'm not sure if I called you first or if he called you on my behalf. Do you remember? No, I, you called. And, okay. Yeah. I, I asked you if them. you could do that or if you could right. arrange it and everything, and then you, of course, volunteered to do it yourself, not as a special deal, not as a Young Eagles. Well, I mean... It, he was a young eagle flying, but it wasn't as part of a an event. Yeah, well, one-on-one on on one is better than an event right. anyway. Right, and uh, well, everybody was impressed by that in my family, that you, you did that. <laughs> to, to, in their minds, you're the guy that works at Dynon, you know, and you, <laughs> <laughs> and you brought that beautiful Dynon glass star yep. for him to sit in. I, th I thought you were going to do it in your Sonics, and I was shocked to find out that you had that that glass star. I didn't even know about that glass star, I think, at that oh, time. okay. But, uh, yeah, so he, I mean, he had a great time. He still talks about it. I mean, he's gone on. He did all the, when uh, the young, as I understand Young Eagles today, when you do the Young Eagles, then Sporties offers you all this stuff that you can do as a follow-up, uh, right. like ground school type stuff. He's done all of that, and he's been invited to, and you can help me with this because you wrote a recommendation letter for him. He's invited, been invited to some Air Force uh, camp or, or something. Yeah, it's a program. Yeah. A program that he can come and they'll give him, uh, I think he said either 15 or 20 hours of flying time and uh, teach him about aerodynamics and all that kind of stuff. So he's been invited to apply for that. And so he's done that application. 
Oh, and he went, but in the, in the meantime, since he's done that, he went to the uh, NASA space camp at Huntsville, Alabama last summer. And awesome. uh, he was wearing a hat last night that I hadn't seen before, and it's, it had all kinds of aviation stuff on it. And I said, let me see that hat. And I looked at it, and it was, he, it was the hat they gave him at Huntsville. The, it had said aviation something. It had a year on it. I don't remember what the year was. But anyway, he's very into it now, very interested. He gets good grades in school. He's a whiz at math. He's uh, he's an atypical teenager. I mean, if you look at TV these days and see teenagers, that that's not my grandson. My grandson wears he wears his pants up above his ass. You know, <laughs> nothing's hanging out. <laughs> he's clean shaven. Uh, you know, he's he's just a you know, I think perfect any, young man yeah, in my eyes. Any much like your son. Yeah. Much like your son. He would you any grandfather would be very proud yeah. to have him. I am proud of him. Yeah. yeah. And he's looking forward. This thing, I guess they're going to make this decision on these applications in January or, or sometime. Oh, okay. I think that's what his mom told me. So uh, he's looking forward to going to that. All and right. uh, and I was I was trying to get my as I told you earlier today I was trying to get my son to kick in and pay for his flying lessons. And then you mentioned <laughs> gliders, which I never thought of. He could gliders do. and and there's just and so I'm gonna so, I'll bring that back to him today and explain it to him. I don't know anybody up there at Arlington that does that, but uh, I'm we, sure we can make a contact somewhere. Yeah, we have a young lady, um, Ashita, in our chapter. She's on our website, and you can contact her through the uh, email address on the website. Okay, and I'll I'm have sure Tommy do that. She would be more than happy. She's absolutely a wonderful gal that uh, has really got a, uh, a good engine on her. She, good. She, so, and she knows the glider, because she got her glider yep. rating, I think, yep. before she got her pilot's license. Yep. Yeah, okay. Well, let's what... jump into the last topic here before we uh, let you go, which is uh, what kind of advice would you give young kid today growing up <laughs> well that's what i'm doing with my grandson now and trying to give him the right advice i i my advice is to start do as much reading and research as you can do about uh what it takes to be a pilot i mean there's a lot of information out there there's the uh there's manuals that you can buy uh i don't know if kids read books anymore but i'm sure the manuals are on the internet somewhere you mm -hmm. can read them but study up on it and, and learn what what's involved in it and get involved heavily into it he's done it i mean he's he's hooked i guess you'd say and uh i'm looking forward to the day he solos <laughs> I, i'm hoping it'll be sooner than later but he's only a sophomore in high school right now he's he's got his learner's permit to drive and he drove the car the other night uh, uh at night for the first time with his mom in the seat with him but uh I told him i said you know if you play it right you can get your pilot's license before you get your driver's license you can yeah, because you can solo, and I, there's plenty of kids I've read about that have soloed, uh, you know, on their 16th birthdays. Right. When, right when you do it. And I don't know when he's planning on getting his pilot's license, or I mean his driver's license, but you have to be 16 for that too, I think, or maybe it's 17. I don't know. I was thought it was 18. But I, uh, when I lived in Georgia, I was looking, looking forward to being 16 so I could 16. drive. Yeah. And then we moved to New Jersey, and your age was 17. <laughs> <laughs> so I had an extra year to do, but I used to steal a car anyway and drive before I had a license <laughs> at, at night. Well, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't. I, we don't want to talk about that. I had a lot of uh, time on the farm driving. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, without putting words in your mouth, though, one of the observations that I see quite often is uh, kids 
or I shouldn't say kids, but youth today seem to think that there is a lot of obstacles in front of them. Um, they, they tend to think that there's this blocks that weren't there before. Um, I think that it's just a perception. You know, Probably. That, that, that things have changed, but I doubt that there's obstacles and blocks that keep them from doing it. Uh, I wouldn't think so. The thing I the thing I would say about my grandson, anyway, uh, based on how I raised my son, my son was the type of guy that if he wanted to do something, he would go and talk to somebody about doing it. You know, get the right. get the insight on it, and he's never been hesitant about doing that. He, matter of fact, we were talking about that the other night, and he said, I had a lot of friends when I was in high school that were afraid of girls. You know, they would they were afraid to start up a conversation. They right. just wouldn't walk up to a girl and start talking to him. And he, he never could understand that, he said, because every time he saw a girl he wanted to talk to, he just walked up to her and started talking to her. He didn't understand the reluctance of... Rejection? Of, yeah, the rejection part and all yeah. that. And, uh, yeah, I, I told him, I said, I always thought you were going to be a hotshot car salesman or something like that because <laughs> you had the gift of gab. You could always talk to people. And uh, he's an IT guy because <laughs> that's what he likes. But but his son is sort of like that. I can't... He's His son is a... a what do they call it? The skiing on the one ski? What is that called? Like the monoski? No. Oh, the snowboarding. Snowboarding. Yeah, he's a snowboarding uh, enthusiast. My grandson is. Okay. And none of his friends, all his friends are skiers, you know, on skis. And okay. he's been trying to get them to go snowboarding. <laughs> and I just heard last night at dinner in the conversation, he's finally convinced three of his best friends to go snowboarding with him oh, this that's year. that's great. So, uh, I mean, you know, he knows how to go after what he wants. So, so he's not, I don't think he, he's the kind that would put up an artificial block in his way, you know. Like, I, my wife even does that sometimes. You know, she says, I say, why don't you do that? And she says, well, you got to do this, you got to do that. And I said, no, you don't, just do that, you know. And she doesn't see it from the same point of view that I do. I mean, if I want to do something, I do it. Well, what? I'm right now pointing to a sign that I have hanging here on oh, my wall. <laughs> stay off. Okay. Stay off the brakes. Keep moving forward. Yeah, I mean, there's. I, I don't think Tommy, my grandson, would be put off by any kind of artificial roadblock. I mean, he'd figure a way to get around it yeah. because he's uh, he's resourceful, you know, and he want it's something he wants. He's not. He doesn't come across as being passionate about it, but. When you look at his everyday life and what he's doing, you know, it's obvious that he's very into aviation. Well, thanks, Tom. That's great advice and much appreciated. Well, thank you. I think you. I would be somewhat derelict in my duties here to uh, not thank you um, from all the members, all the chapter members, uh, for your service, not only in the Air Force, but your service to the chapter early on and getting things set up down at Harvey. Uh, we've benefited great greatly from your efforts and I know that uh, a lot of the structure in the in the chapter was set up by you and the fact that um, you were able to contribute so much in your short period of time I'm sure wherever you end up in the next chapter is going to benefit also so uh, I really appreciate all that. Well thank you Dave. It was a pleasure doing it all and I had fun and thanks for introducing me to chapter 84 Yeah, my <laughs> back in the day. Thanks for coming down, Tom. Um, boy. Say hi to everybody for me. I will me. say hi to everybody. Well, Especially you did, Kenny Rayburn. You he just fin- did. He, he finished his uh, Sonex, but he's never flown it, as I understand yeah. it. So. We'll, we'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
And now the news for November 2023. Hey, did you know that the chapter hosts a social hour before each meeting, even during the winter months? Starting at 6 p.m., come join your fellow members and sometimes even special guests for our social hour. Some snacks and beverages are provided, but members are also encouraged to bring something to share. Last month, we were honored to have World War II and Korean War pilot Ray Goodwin stop in to visit with us for a few minutes. Who knows who may pop in this month. For those of you who grew up in western Washington, that should be a familiar sound. And for those of you who don't recognize it, let me help you out with a few hints. Miss Thriftway, Miss Bardall, Slow Motion, Miss Payinpack, and of course, Miss Budweiser. Now you all know I'm talking about the fastest motorsport on water, and that is hydroplane racing. If those sounds give you goosebumps and bring back some great childhood memories, then you should be excited to hear about our presentation for this month. Dan High from the Hydroplane and Powerboat Museum will be coming by to talk to us about the engines that made these boats so fast, specifically the Allison, Merlin, and Griffin V-12s that were modified from aircraft engines to work in boats going over 200 miles per hour on water. And if that isn't enough to get you excited, the chapter will be having a field trip on November 18th to the museum. Our tour will start at 10 a.m. at the Kent facility. But if you are interested in carpooling, be at Harvey Field, the main parking lot, no later than 8.45 a.m. Some of us will be having breakfast at the Buzz Inn prior to leaving for the museum, and you are welcome to join us there. Admission for the tour is $5, half off the regular price. For more information, see the chapter newsletter. Unfortunately, there seems to be a growing trend at airports around the country, with city administrators banning the common training practice of touch-and-goes. Recently, members of the Torrance City Council in California voted 5-0 to ban the commonly used training practice. What drove the city council to take such action? Well, once again, the phantom called community pressure to reduce noise. Those of us who fly out of Harvey Field know this issue all too well, where touch-and-goes are strongly discouraged for numerous reasons, including noise. As populations continue to spread into once open areas and housing gets denser around airports that once enjoyed a sparse population, airplane noise will continue to be one of the many issues general aviation will continue to have to deal with for years to come. Well, that's a wrap for this month's podcast. Spread the word about the EA Chapter 84 podcast to your aviation friends and family. It's available for download on most popular apps, including Spotify, Apple, and Google. Make sure to hit that like button, subscribe, and give us a five-star review. And we encourage you to listen to previous podcasts, as there now are over 20 different interviews. I hope you remember to file a flight plan for next month's podcast. Be sure to find the latest news by following EA Chapter 84 on social media apps like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, this has been your host, David Weber, and remember, stay off the brakes, keep moving forward.